Hello and welcome to The Environment Show. I'm Phil Stubbs. In this episode, I'm speaking with Captain Paul Watson. You may know him as the founder and face of Sea Shepherd, the marine conservation organisation. Paul Watson has been a striking character in the environmental movement over the last 50 years. That's because he and Sea Shepherd haven't just protested environmental injustice, they've actively intervened doing whatever it takes to save whales and other marine life. One result is that the Japanese are no longer conducting whale hunts in the Antarctic. But Paul is also contending with legal restrictions slapped on him by the countries that aren't too happy with his tactics. In this interview, Paul talks about life now, what he's learned about activism and the challenges for the natural world from human activity. A lot of people are probably not aware, Paul, of the amount of poaching going on in our oceans. I wonder if you can tell us about that and how poaching can be stopped. About 40% of the fish that's taken from the sea has been caught illegally. And what Sea Shepherd has been doing is uh, intervening against those illegal operations. Uh, since 2005, we've been doing partnerships with various nations. So we're now in partnership with seven African nations, including Tanzania, Namibia, Gabon, Santome, Liberia, uh, and also with Mexico and Peru. And we're getting invited to become involved in other partners with other nations. What that does is we provide the resources and the volunteers, and they provide the authority, which allows us to intervene within their national waters. Outside of, out of national jurisdictions, then what we do is we operate in accordance with the principles of the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for non-government organizations uh, to intervene against illegal activities. So uh, over the last year, we've arrested 52 poaching vessels in African waters. We've seized about 130,000 meters of illegal nets in the uh, Sea of Cortez in Mexico. And actually, I'm quite confident that the Bikita uh, porpoise would now be extinct if it wasn't for the last seven years of our interventions. And we're doing anti-poaching patrols uh, in the Mediterranean, protecting turtles off the island of my yacht, uh, pretty much as a worldwide thing. Sea Shepherd has become an international or a global movement, and we're in about 42 different countries now. And the vaquita is interesting too, Paul, isn't it? At last I heard there was like 17 or 18 left. Is that right? It's between 17 and 22, but we know they're still there because we get uh, acoustical signatures uh, when we're in the area. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say it's a lost cause, but I don't believe that. You know, we've managed to bring the whooping crane and the California condor back up on the brink of extinction. I think we can do the same with, with the vaquita. And it's also, it's more than just a vaquita. The, the, the main fishery, the target of that fishery is the totoava, which is uh, about the same size as the vaquita. And it's the, the totoava bladder, the swim bladder that they want, which is worth up to $20,000 a kilo in the Chinese market. So that's a lot of... Um, motivation for them to be doing this illegally. And the totoaba is an endangered species. So it's about protecting two species uh, in the Sea of Cortez. And so one of the terms you use, Paul, is aggressive nonviolence to describe Sea Shepherd's approach. Uh, could you explain that? When I established Sea Shepherd in 1977, I had just left Greenpeace, which is a protest organization. And I, I didn't find myself as being very much of a protester. I felt there was a need to intervene and so I set Sea Shepherd up uh, as an inter interventionist organization, anti-poaching organization. And uh, we operate within the boundaries of the law and practicality, but also uh, we're totally nonviolent. In uh, 42 years of operations, we've never caused a single injury to a single person, nor have we sustained any serious injuries. 
but we shut down literally hundreds of illegal activities around the world. So we're aggressive, but we're still nonviolent. So I saw you say once, Paul, that I never look at myself as a radical activist. I'm more a conservative. I mean, the conservatives are trying to conserve. The radicals are destroying the planet. It's a great quote, Paul. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, conservative means to conserve. So real conservatives are conservationists. The radicals are the ones who are cutting down the forests and polluting the ocean and overfishing the seas and causing all these problems. You know, we get called a lot of names, uh, you know, and people call me an eco-terrorist. I said, no, nah, I've, never, I've never worked for Monsanto, so that doesn't qualify. <laughs> so, you know, it is, you just get used to all the name calling and everything. It doesn't really bother us. But I've always considered myself to be very conservative in nature, but conservative in the truest sense, which is uh, to protect uh, the status quo, the natural status quo. And probably one of your most famous quotes, Paul, is, if the oceans die, we die. Could you talk about our connection with the ocean? Well, the actual quote is, if the ocean dies, we die. Because what is the ocean? The ocean is a planet. Uh, it's water in continuous circulation. Sometimes it's in the sea. Sometimes it's in ice or it's underground. It's in the clouds and it's in the cells of every living plant and animal. So the water that was once in the sea is now in you, will soon be in the sky. It's, a, it's continuous motion. That is the ocean. But if any part of that is damaged, then it affects every other part. So in the sea, where we're concentrating our efforts, for instance, phytoplankton has been diminished by about 40% since uh, 1950. And phytoplankton provides about 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe. If phytoplankton were to disappear from the sea, we all die. We don't live on this planet without phytoplankton. That's how closely and intimately connected we are to that group of species. So there's so many other things like trees and bees and uh, worms. Uh, all of these things are absolutely essential for our survival. The laws of ecology are very straightforward. There's three basic laws of ecology. The law of diversity, that the strength of an ecosystem is dependent upon diversity within it. The law of interdependence, that all of those species are interdependent with each other and the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth because there's a limit to carrying capacity. And what we're doing is stealing the carrying capacity from other species, and that uh, leads to diminishment of both diversity and interdependence, which ultimately will affect our survival. And what can people do, Paul, if they're concerned about the oceans? Well, specifically with Sea Shepherd, you know, people can either, either volunteer to be on the ship or be shore supporters or be contributors. But more importantly, what, what can people do to protect the planet as a whole? And I always say that people should really harness their passion. What are you passionate about? Harness that to your skills, your abilities, and try to make us a better planet. And uh, that doesn't matter if your approach is education or litigation or legislation or direct action, it all works towards the same thing because the strength of uh, an ecosystem is in diversity, therefore the strength of any movement must be in diversity and the interdependence of all of those different strategies together. And it's interesting, Paul, the, uh, the story about how you started at a young age, your activism, can you tell us that story? When I was 10 years old, I spent a, a summer swimming with a family of beavers in uh, eastern Canada, where I was raised. And uh, I had a great time. And the next summer, I went back to find my beavers, and they were all gone. And uh, I found out the trappers had taken them during the winter. And that made me very angry. And uh, that winter, I began to walk the trap lines and free the animals and destroy the traps. So I really started doing what I'm doing at the age of 11. And then I was the youngest uh, co-founder of Greenpeace when I was um, 18. And Paul, of all the things you've 
done uh, over the decades, what are you most proud of? What do you hope to be your legacy? I think what I'm most proud of is uh, actually helping to create a global movement, which is pretty much unstoppable. You know, when the Japanese came after me personally in 2012 and came after Sea Shepherd in the United States uh, specifically, they taught us a lesson that, you know, you can stop an individual, you can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. It's an idea. So Sea Shepherd is now in 42 different countries with hundreds of volunteers and directors and captains and officers and crew. And uh, that, uh, that's very powerful. The great thing today, I don't have to have a hands-on thing. I'm not there to control things. I can just sit there and watch how everything comes together, all of these different campaigns under the leadership of so many talented and passionate people. And there are some legal restrictions, Paul, aren't there for you getting back out to sea? Is that right? And how are you going with being landlocked? Well, the legal restrictions are only on me. Uh, Japan has me on the Interpol Red Notice. You know, the Interpol Red Notice was uh, designed to stop uh, war criminals, serial killers, and major drug traffickers. And I'm the only person in the history of that uh, list to be put on there for conspiracy to trespass. I heard anybody, didn't damage any property, didn't steal anything. But Japan's a powerful country, so they got me on there, mainly to prevent me from traveling. They don't really want I mean, they could uh, file for extradition in the United States where I am, but they haven't bothered. And when I was in France, they didn't bother there either. Uh, They just want to put these travel restrictions on me. But it it doesn't really matter because it hasn't stopped. In fact, it's made Sea Shepherd stronger. Uh, Yes, it restricts me personally, but it certainly hasn't restricted the activities of, of Sea Shepherd overall. And how are you going with being landlocked, Paul? I think we're all landlocked right now, <laughs> but um, I, you know, it all worked out. Personally, it worked out very good, well for me. If it wasn't for the Japanese uh, putting these restrictions on me, I wouldn't have met my wife in France. I wouldn't have a four-year-old son now and everything's fine. Mm. And also Sea Shepherd wouldn't be as strong as it is now. So I'm, I'm really quite happy with, uh, with all of that. To show you how political this is, is uh, I was on two red notices. Costa Rica had me on one. And last year, Costa Rica dismissed the charges and dropped it. Why? change the government. Now, if this was judicial, then they wouldn't have been able to do that. But because it's political, a new government was able to just say, what is this? This is just crap and dismissed it. And now we're working with Costa Rica. And Paul, what about Sea Shepherd? Can you talk about the future for Sea Shepherd? Well, I don't know the future. And, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson many, many years ago. In 1973, I volunteered to be a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And we were surrounded by 3,000 federal agents who were shooting at us. They wounded 46, killed two. And I went to Russell Means, who was a leader of the American Indian Movement. And I said to him, we don't have any hope of winning. The odds are against us. Why are we still here? And his answer has stayed with me for the rest of my life. He said, "Uh, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. And we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be, the right time to do it, the right thing to do. He said, don't worry about the future. Concentrate on the present. What you do in the present will define the future. And if all your energies go towards that, and not to get depressed or worried or even contemplate the future, just focus on the present and do what you need to do to Mm. make for a better future. You know, to be a conservationist, you have to uh, be a visionary in this sense. You have to be concerned about what kind of world it's going to be here, not just 10 years from now, 100 years from now, a million years from now. The planet will be defined by, by what we do today. And the only way we're going to ensure a good future for the planet as a whole is to do everything we can with the abilities we have in the present. 
Peter Singer, you might know, the Professor of Ethics at Princeton said of you, without the presence of Watson and Sea Shepherd on the high seas, there would be much less public knowledge, much less media interest, and much less international focus on what's happening with whales. So that is one of the remarkable achievements that you've done in your life, Paul. And, and actually, interestingly, I wonder about the importance of the media in your work. When I began with Greenpeace, it's no accident that uh, Greenpeace was founded by reporters, journalists, broadcasters. I was a major in communications at the time. We understood that we lived in a media culture that we have to understand the rules of media. Also understood that the most powerful weapon on the planet is the camera. Uh, if it's not on camera, it didn't happen really. So that's why we go to, into our confrontations with a lot of cameras. <laughs> Instead of cannons, we're pirates with cameras. That's why we did our program, Whale Wars, because, you know, I went to all the different networks and I said, you know, the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of guys going into a remote and cold area to catch crabs every week. And I can give you men and women going to a colder, more hostile area, a more remote area to save whales. It has to be more compelling than, than catching crabs. And that became their top show on, on Animal Planet and it reached millions and millions of people. And so really, everything that we did in the Southern Ocean, part of our success with that, with the fact that the Japanese are no longer in the Southern Ocean, was the fact that we were able to get that message out to people around the world. One of the things I find interesting is the way that you talk about the beauty and the intelligence of marine creatures, and of course, especially whales. I wonder if you could talk about that. The way humans define intelligence is interesting. Uh, it's all eye-to-hand coordination. If if it can manipulate a tool, well, it's intelligent. If it can drive a car, it's intelligent. But intelligence is more than that. Intelligence is the ability to live in harmony with your uh, environment. And uh, I was uh, debating a, a Norwegian whaler on this point. He said, but Watson, you say that whales are more intelligent than human beings. How can you say something so stupid? And I said, well, George, I measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony with the environment. And by that criteria, whales are far more intelligent than we are. And he looked at me and says, well, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. I said, George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, but also, when, I, when it comes to cetaceans, you're looking at a completely different intelligence. Uh, the human brain has got three lobes. Cetacean brains are four lobes. That fourth lobe is almost all associative behavior. Their abilities and communications are far higher than we are. The average human brain is 1,700 cubic centimeters. The average orca brain is 6,000 cubic centimeters. The average sperm whale brain is 9,000 cubic centimeters. And the convolutions on the neocortex of those brains are far more pronounced than on the human brain. These are intelligent animals. They're big brain animals. And people say, well, they're big animals, therefore they got big brains. Yeah, well, if you measured uh, intelligence to body size or brain to body size, then the hummingbird would be more intelligent, you know. But Whales don't need the technology that we have. They can communicate with each other. They're perfectly adapted to their environment. I believe that someday using computers and that, and if we apply ourselves, we'll be able to communicate with them. Uh, I'm really convinced that we can, and many whale scientists that I've talked to, like Dr. Paul Swong or Dr. Roger Payne, agree with me on that. But we're too busy killing them. You know, By the time we find out how to do it, there might not be any left. But more importantly, whales perform an absolute essential function in the ocean. They are the farmers of the ocean. They provide the nutrient base for the phytoplankton, the nitrogen and the iron. You know, they bring up the carbon from the depths and they deposit it on the surface. So it's called the carbon pump or the whale pump. And uh, that is the nutrient base for phytoplankton. So when you reduce uh, marine mammal populations, you're actually reducing uh, phytoplankton populations at the same time. And of course, phytoplankton supports zooplankton, which promotes all the fishes in the sea. 
it's really a life support system. You know, the Earth, the planet, is a spaceship. That's what we are. We're going on this incredible trip around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system that provides us with the air we breathe, the food that we eat, and regulates climate and temperature. That, that life support system is operated and maintained by a crew, a crew of Earthlings. And we're not part of that crew. We're passengers. We're having a wonderful time entertaining ourselves. But what we are do is we're murdering crew members. We're killing off the crew. And there's only so many crew that you can kill before the machinery begins to break down and it all falls apart. Uh, we have to live in harmony with all of these other species. And we have to understand that our survival is very intimately uh, connected to their survival if we're going to survive ourselves. So there has been extinctions before, hasn't there, Paul, on the Earth? And, you know, they say that there's a the sixth extinction now. Do you think humans are smart enough to survive that? I wish that I could say that humans were smart enough to survive that, but the history doesn't look very good. Uh, we're a very destructive uh, species. But on the bright side, what do all of those major extinction events have in common? Permian extinction wiped out 97% of everything in the ocean, 75% of everything on land. But all of those extinctions have this in common, 18 to 20 million years for full recovery. So no matter what we do, 18 to 20 million years from now, it's going to be a nice planet again. We're just not going to be here. But we are in the midst of the sixth extinction. We're going to lose more species of plants and animals between 2000 and 2065 than we lost in the last 65 million years since the last major extinction unless we do something to change that. But the problem is twofold. One, our anthropocentric mentality. We, we have this delusion that we are the center of everything, that we're dominant over all of their species, and we're the only species that matter. Uh, we have to regain this biocentric point of view that we're part of everything and not dominant over everything. And we have to change our economic political systems from this short-term investment for short-term gain people don't really think about it, what the impact of that's going to have uh, on the future. In fact, many corporations are literally investing in extinction. They're making money off the extinction of species, like bluefin tuna, for example, is a good one. So this is the destructive part of it. You know, my life changed in 1975 when I had an incident with a whale that was um, harpooned by a Soviet whaling vessel, and that whale could have killed me. It rose up out of the water and was about to fall back onto me. And I looked into his eye and I saw, I was so close, I could see my own reflection in that eye. What I saw in there was understanding. I saw the whale make the effort to push himself back and to fall back into the sea and his eye disappeared beneath the surface and he died. Could have killed me, chose not to do so. But I saw something else in that eye, pity. Not for himself, but for us. That we could take life so thoughtlessly, without any empathy, without any understanding. And as, as I was sitting there in the middle of the Soviet whaling fleet in the Pacific Ocean and the sun was going down, and I said to myself, why are they killing these whales? They don't eat sperm whales. They kill them for oil, spermaceti oil especially. And one of the things that it was most prized for by the Soviets was in the construction of intercontinental ballistic missiles. I said, here we are killing this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, socially complex, self-aware, sentient being for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. We're insane. Absolutely, totally insane. Certainly ecologically insane. It was from that moment on, I said, you know, everything I do for the rest of my life is for them, for the creatures of the sea. And if people criticize that, I don't really care. In 1986, when we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet and destroyed their whale processing plant and shut down their operations for 17 years, a former colleague from Greenpeace came and said, you know, I just want to let you know that what you did in Iceland was 
reprehensible and unforgivable and you're an embarrassment to the movement. I said, yeah, okay, so? I said, I don't really care, John. Didn't sink those whaling ships for you or for Greenpeace or for anybody else. We sank them for the whales. Find me a whale that disagreed with what we did and I promise you we won't do it again. And you've been listening to an interview with Captain Paul Watson. I've written a profile of Watson on our website at environmentshow.com. You'll find there the story of how he started, a video of Sea Shepherd's clash with Japanese whalers, and a lot more. This is The Environment Show. Stay tuned for more interviews with the world's environmental leaders. I'm Phil Stubbs.